Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we are talking to Emily Ewell. Emily is the CEO and founder of Panties, a pioneer in improving the health of women and the planet through sustainability and innovation with the first clinically approved absorbent technology globally for menstruation, maternity, and incontinence. Her experience ranges broadly across health sectors, pharmaceutical, medical device, hospital, governments, NGOs, consumer health, and e-commerce, with a goal to transform daily life through consumer-centric technologies and solutions. She's passionate about disruptive innovations that improve the health and sustainability of lives around the world. Hi, Emily. So great to have you with us today. How are you doing? Hi, Maria. It's great to be with you all today as well. Thanks for having me. Actually, you know, thanks for coming back here. So, you know, uh, for the listeners that are not aware, Emily, she already gave us an interview, but for the Brazilian channel, she's living in Brazil for eight years. And, you know, we, we heard the interview, we were like, okay, she has to come to the, to the US channel as well. So it's really great to have you back here. And, you know, I'd love to begin by getting to know a little more of your journey What inspired you to found Panties? Is there any story behind that? No, absolutely. There's always a story, isn't there, Maria? I love those stories, you know? <laughs> the most exciting part of being an entrepreneur is those early days and how things started. But So I'm from the, the Washington, D.C. area originally and a chemical engineer. So my background is a little bit more technical. But I worked for years in strategy consulting and the healthcare space, pharmaceutical space, went back and got an MBA and a master's in public health from Berkeley and moved to Europe, spent some time living in Switzerland. And all of my technology team was based in Brazil. So I found myself coming back and forth, already living outside the U.S., but coming in back and forth into Brazil for work. And during that time, I met my husband. So became very interested both personally and professionally in Brazil And just really fell in love with the culture. You know, it's such a, a big country with a lot of opportunities. And it's also a place, there's very few countries globally that have full end-to-end -end supply chains of different, of various industries. So, you know, if you look at the fashion industry, which is, you know, I say that we're a, a health company that looks like a fashion brand, um, but we're really more of a, a healthcare company. And, you know, we have everything from raw materials to, you know, fabrics to cut and sew. So there's just a lot of innovation here. And it's just a really rich place to create opportunities, to innovate and to build companies. So when I was here, um, I was working for a multinational pharmaceutical company and moved to Brazil with them and left and worked for a venture builder in Boston that had this focus on digitally native brands. And so I kind of left the healthcare world for a little bit to focus on e-commerce and, you know, helping, you know, look at interesting opportunities for starting up businesses. Although I was based in Brazil, the entire team was in the U.S. And I started looking for opportunities, you know, for startups where I thought, you know, what, what is the world missing? What do you think that we can make to really create an impact on the world? And so... During that time, my business partner, Duda, whose her family has experience in lingerie manufacturing as well, we started talking about menstrual underwear and you know how we saw other brands popping up in other parts of the world 
but all of these products were really focused on being used to avoid leaks for tampon users or cup users that are just looking to avoid some type of leak-proof protection. If you look at the Brazilian market compared to the U.S. market, for example, here 90% of the market uses pads, and the U.S. is about 70% tampons, so very, uh, very different in terms of preferences. And so for us, it was very clear that there's a huge opportunity not just to bring a better quality of life to women with more comfortable products because the products look and feel just like normal underwear. You don't feel like you're wearing a pad inside your underwear, for example, which is a big surprise to people. And on the other side, you know, avoiding trash that's created by, you know, disposable menstrual products. So really single use products is our, what we're trying to avoid. And, and most, for example, pads or t traditional tampons, we also have organic cotton tampons as well, but traditional tampons, you know, they're over 80% made out of plastic. They take over 400 years to decompose. And so it's just a huge opportunity to bring, you know, quality of life to, to women, to people, health also to the planet. Each year in Brazil, you know, 15 billion pads are disposed every year. So it's just an absurd number. Brazil and India are the two biggest markets for pads. But if we look globally, you know, you're approaching a trillion single-use menstrual products disposed every year. So it's just a huge opportunity. And, and we just fell in love with the idea and we went with it 100%. And I just can't imagine that. Think everybody about this volume and that it takes more than 400 years to decompose. It's just disgusting. And, you know, I, I can actually testify for that because, you know, before I interviewed her, even before I talked to her, I was interested. So I bought, I tried, and I can tell you that it's super comfortable. So it's worth trying. So, you know, we had a guest here. Her name is Elena Branco and our Brazilian host mentioned her to you as well in the Brazilian interview. She gave us some pretty shocking stats, like 25% of Brazilian teenagers can't afford pads and end up missing up to 45 days of school per year, which is crazy. More than one and a half million Brazilians leaving houses without bathroom. Do you think it will be possible to turn this type of sustainable, renewable products more accessible to the population? Because usually it costs pretty high to the average consumer, and especially considering the, the, the penetration in the market as well. How do you see that? No, I think this is something that we think a lot about, especially as a certified B Corporation. You know, we're really committed to both environmental impact and social impact causes. We also launched a digital protest called the Pinties Protest to focus on raising money and donations for menstrual poverty. But, you know, when we look at Brazil and other markets, I think that, and we've, we've done a lot of work, we have an educational program as well called Cycle Foundation, where we actually go into schools, public schools, and do sex ed, like sexual education for both girls and boys that are 13 years old and talk about you know, everything from menstrual cycles to sorority to positive masculinity. Um, so kind of new themes that are important to bring into the next generation. And, and I'm a big believer that reusable menstrual products will be a big part of helping end menstrual poverty. Because if you think about, and even we've, we've talked with a number of government organizations here as well, because now there's some budgets opening up to help provide menstrual products for girls in schools, which is amazing. But when you look at disposable products, a lot of times, well, first off, they're disposable. So if you, if you provide, you know, let's say you have 100 girls and you provide them maybe 500 pads or 1,000 pads because they're going to need a number per cycle, right? 
they're going to have access for one month. But then what do you do the next month? The next month, you're going to have to provide another 500,000 pads so for her to have access. And a lot of times, the logistical prices of shipping these products is even more expensive than the actual products themselves. So even, you know, the pads that you buy on the shelf at the pharmacy, a lot of that cost is, is also logistics and shipping costs. So for reusable products, on the other hand, you know, our product is super high absorption. It's, we have a, a clinically approved technology that we use that's proven up to 100 washes. So you can reuse 100 times a product, which means that if you give a school 100 girls panties, you know, two or three panties, for example, for each of them, they will not have access for years. And you won't have to, you will actually fix, and between, you know, quotes, fix that problem for a, a much longer period of time. And so that's what I, when I look at public health interventions, that's where I see a lot of hope with reusable products. And since we know that menstrual cups and internal products aren't necessarily that accessible, especially for younger teens, menstrual underwear is by far the most accessible product because every menstrual product you use with underwear and people forget that, that actually underwear is a hygiene product. It was invented for hygiene reasons, and now it's become kind of a sexualized fashion product. But it's, that was never actually the intention. So, yeah, we're big, big believers and hopers that we can help be a part of that solution. That's great. And, you know, usually when thinking about pads and absorbing underwear, you usually think about women, Right. But you have this whole, you have a line of products that is dedicated to men health as well, either for the incontinence part, but also men that menstruate, right? So could we cover this segment? How open are men? So first of all, I'd like to cover this segment, but then I'm curious about the acceptance, like how, how open are men to using reusable absorbent underwear and compared to females as well, because I understand that there must be a taboo on the female side as well, right? So what's the challenges to, to reaching both of those audiences? And if the, the fears or the questions are, are similar or different? No, I think that's a really good point. So to, to, um, I'm going to separate here the incontinence from menstruation, because I think that they're really different in terms of how the customer perceives them and, and that taboo associated with them. So we launched last year boxers for trans men who menstruate, and I think it was a really important launch for us because we had received a, a lot of feedback from our community and for specific individuals that said, oh, I, you know, I don't identify as a woman or I don't like wearing women's underwear. Even a lot of women that said I prefer kind of a more boxer style product. And so really from an inclusivity side, and we have a very community-based innovation approach. So almost all of our products, including our absorbent leak-proof nursing bra that was the first in the world, was created with consumers, with customers that said, hey, why don't you do this? Or I would really love if you do this. And we say, okay, why don't you help us? You know, And I think that that's um, a really unique opportunity for brands to, to view, not criticism, but huge opportunities. If you listen to your customers, that's where you're going to have the best innovation. And so we actually, in a collaborative way, created the, the boxer that we have for men who menstruate or uh, women who don't prefer feminine style underwear as well. And it was such an amazing process because, you know, it was a complicated product from a construction standpoint. And we wanted to make sure that it really attended their needs and they felt like it was something that was developed for them. So 
that was something that we didn't see as much taboo around. Even when we launched the product, it was one of our most successful launches from a communication standpoint because the whole community really embraced it. The media really embraced it. We, you know, we thought, oh, maybe we're going to get pushback from, we got no pushback. Everybody thought it was amazing. So for me, it, it really showed that as a brand, I think a lot of brands are not afraid to do new things, but they, they worry that they're going to get criticism for doing new things. And the truth is, is if you are an innovative or pioneering brand, you're going to always receive some type of criticism. I think that that you just have to accept that you're not going to make everybody happy. But that was just a, a very successful launch in terms of both fitting consumers' needs as, as well as representing values that are really important to us as a brand. On the other side, we also do have men that use the box surfer incontinence. And we also launched an incontinence line for women that is a different technology actually designed specifically for urine, not for menstrual fluid. And it's the highest absorptive reusable underwear in the world. So it holds up to 100 milliliters of liquid, which is an incredibly high capacity. And from a textile engineering standpoint, it is a real innovation. And this was something that really surprised me. When we launched this product, we also built this in collaboration with our community. And we already had a lot of women that were using our products for incontinence, light incontinence, not necessarily moderate or heavier incontinence. But we found a really hard time getting people to talk about it. And so it turns out that incontinence, whether you're a man or a woman, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to acknowledge that they're having issues because it is a sign of aging. And so it just really shows that you know, menstrual cycles is something that you have kind of this group of women and people that you can feel like, you know, we're all in the menstruating age and it's something that happens to all of us and it's great. And you feel this sense of community. Uh, incontinence, we, we haven't gotten there yet, but I think that there's a huge opportunity there. And, you know, there's definitely a lot. If you look at the emotional journey of consumers, there's a lot of pains and unmet needs that, you know, have a huge, huge opportunity to create that sense of community and also normalizing, you know, health, normalizing our bodies and not judging ourselves, you know, is it bad? Is it good? It doesn't matter. It's happening. That's our body. And that's, you know, if you look at the, the data, over 50% of women over 50 years old have some form of incontinence. So the prevalence is there, but I think there's a lot of work to be done on how people relate to that and their bodies during that time. And so it's a huge challenge, but I think as a brand, it's something that, that we want to you know, focus on more. There's truly a great market out there. You know, I'm curious. You say, if I heard it correctly, right, that panties is 100% carbon free. So which measures did you take to already have that accomplished? Now, that was a huge ambition of ours. We were actually the first lingerie brand globally to launch carbon labels and the first fashion brand in Brazil to launch carbon labels. And um, there are a number of brands now. I think the, the food industry has led probably faster evolution in this area than the fashion industry. But like Allbirds is a great example. Oatly, which is a oatmeal-based milk product as well. Um, and so carbon literacy is something that I think as a brand, we have a, a role that we can take in trying to educate consumers around carbon emissions. And I think it's important that it's not about carbon shaming or making people feel bad about their carbon emissions, because we saw in the community even a lot of confusion around like, oh, 
you know, panties, products emit carbon, is that bad? And it's like, everything we do emits carbon. <laughs> and yes, it's always bad. But I think that what's really important is as a brand is not to focus on the carbon neutral or even carbon negative, which is something that's kind of a newer trend, but to focus on the transparency to your consumers, which is much harder to do. And so we actually hired Way Carbon, which is um, a Brazilian-based company that is a certified carbon expert, to actually do a life cycle analysis of our product. And in such a detailed way, where, they, where is every fiber that we use sourced from? What is the logistics of how that fiber is transported from point X to point Y? And what vehicle is used to transport it? So is it by plane? Is it by truck? Is it by... And so this is not like a, a third party, because I think a lot of even some brands have, you know, kind of searched for information online and even publicly published their own analysis of their carbon footprint, which I think is great. I think that's a great first step. But as a company, for us to internally do that analysis, there's a conflict of interest there. Because how can I say what my own carbon foot is the same as like a B Corp. Like I can't say what my what my B Corp status is. You know, that has to be certified by an external You can't be cer certifying yourself, right? It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that was my big and I think that, you know, Pansies, we do things differently. Like we have a lot of responsibility to Be careful, you know, I think the sustainability is a, is a big claim to say that it's something that you support environmental sustainability. And if you make that claim, you have to be very transparent about how you're doing that. So, so I wanted to have a third party accredited partner that helped us on that journey. And we did the whole life cycle, including product use and disposal, which some companies don't put use and disposal in their neutral and negative account. So This is an area that's so new that it's not standardized. Every company is doing kind of their own approach. So it's not, you can't really necessarily compare from one company to another yet. But I do think there's a huge, and I hope that there's a huge opportunity that, you know, some maybe some players will come in like B Corp and say, oh, now we're, you know, the carbon label, the C Corp or, you know, C label or something. They come up with some name that... It actually has a methodology that you have to follow to, to be able to have standardization and to compare from company to another. But so that's how we did it. So it was really focused not just on the neutral, but focused on transparency and trying to communicate and bring the carbon literacy to our community. Um, and then obviously with that information, we were able to reinvest into carbon programs like, you know, reforestation in the Amazon and um, programs in various different areas of Brazil as well to compensate for that emission. So when I was reading about it, the goal of being carbon neutral, some companies are actually replacing that by being carbon negative. Is this something feasible or is this just, you know, companies trying to show off? <laughs> or I don't know, I, I would guess if, if you are like now thinking about it, if you are already a carbon, 100% carbon free company and you're engaging on programs to, to help reforest the Amazon, for example, maybe this would make you a, car a carbon negative company? Absolutely. So first I want to say it's not a competition about who is more carbon negative and by how much. But I think that it, that's important. Like from us, We actually shared all of our methodology and also we're very open about our partner because we wanted other brands to, to follow on and also create carbon labels. 
But I, I do think that, you know, that's for each company to decide how they do it. And I've seen some companies doing carbon negative, but they're not always including use and disposal, which is kind of the end of life part of the cycle. So it's really just, you know, it's hard to compare. I think that you do have to be careful, though, as a consumer of companies that say that they're carbon neutral or negative, and they don't provide any numbers. So if they're saying that claim without a carbon label, that's what I would be concerned about because they're focusing on the marketing side and not necessarily the transparency side, which is more important. So that would be my biggest position, I think, as a pioneer in this space is that you have to bring the transparency with that marketing lingo. Otherwise, it seems a little bit, you know, flat. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, hopefully this whole movement of carbon literacy will eventually end up on the high school systems, like to, to be part of our regular education and be something normal. I remember that years ago, at least in Brazil, you wouldn't have all the nutrition facts of a regular product uh, on the labels, and then they have all this information. And, you know, hopefully this will be something that will, will be obligatory as well on the consumer side, so people can be a little more aware, because it's so hard to understand your impact without having access to this information, right? No, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of people that are working on this now. I think integrating into the school systems is amazing. I recently did a talk at South by Southwest about carbon labels. And one of the other participants, Michelle, is from Clever Carbon. So if you are curious on calculating your personal carbon emissions, clevercarbon.io is an amazing resource. They have a number of guides that compare like for example, regular coffee is 50 grams, uh, latte is 250 grams. Um, and so it's just even for you to start putting in your head, just like how the nutrition label, you know, back in the day, nobody had any idea how much a calorie was and how much sugar, how much calories were in, you know, a teaspoon of sugar. And now you kind of have an idea, like, you know, that 100 calories is better than 300 calories. And you can kind of imagine what those products might be. So I think we're kind of in the beginning of that wave. And, you know, I think Companies have a huge opportunity to bring education to market. And so we see that as an important pillar for us. Having a you know, firm positioning around environmental sustainability um, and bringing that education to the market and not just talking about it, but also educating consumers. Emily, it was absolutely lovely, lovely to have you on the show with us. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but it was great. I'd like to leave, you know, the final words to you. If you want to tell your listeners, you know, how to find, where to find panties or how to find you, or if they have any questions regarding carbon literacy or whatever you'd like, please uh, be my guest. It was really great. Thank you so much. No, thanks so much, Maria. It was a pleasure. And um, panties, you can find us online at panties.com. It's our biggest channel for sales, but we also sell through major retailers globally, including Selfridges in London, Galeries Lafayette in France, um, Zalando in all of Europe, Amazon as well. So so keep an eye out for us. And you know, I would just say that, you know, habits, the choices we make every day are really the most Im important impacts that we can create in the world. It's a huge opportunity. And so it's not us as a company, like we can invent new products and bring new products to the market that are more sustainable, but we by ourselves can't create the impact. It's our consumers and people that make decisions in their daily life to have a more sustainable lifestyle and to choose more sustainable products that are really making the impact. So it's not us, it's you. And we know that you all are a part of this uh, journey and impact together with us and really appreciate the opportunity. That was perfect. Thank you so much, Emily. Future Hacker. Life. 
path, future.